everybody. Welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I am Thad Forrester. Appreciate you tuning back in and listening. Uh, this week's guest is Justin Constantine, and I am uh, was introduced to him relatively recently, and I'm kind of surprised I wasn't aware of Justin before now, but I, I hope you'll feel the same way after hearing from him. Um, before I get to Justin, I did want to just uh, go and read an iTunes re- uh, review. Uh, this is from Lindum Enterprises. I believe that's Lindum ENT anyway. And it says, uh, for more than six years, I've been an avid podcast consumer. I subscribe to several podcasts and spend all my drive time hours listening and learning. This podcast is great because it features interesting and compelling guests. And the host asks great questions. Appreciate that. Also, I highly recommend Thad's book about his brother, who is the ultimate inspiration for his work. So uh, that was uh, a five-star review. Um, and I believe, actually, I know who that was. That was Matt. And so, Matt, I appreciate that. Uh, we'll, you'll probably be on the show as a guest at some point in the near future. So uh, please please go and rate the podcast. You can, Of course, you can just give it the, the, the starred ratings. Um, but you could also actually write a review, which is even better. So uh, appreciate everyone uh, listening and sharing, and so please continue to share it. And uh, you can you can copy links and email it out to people, or share it on Facebook, or wherever you want to. Um, I want to get in now to Justin uh, Constantine. This is a this is going to be a really good interview. Uh, Justin actually he he volunteered for deployment to Iraq in 2006 as a civil affairs team leader. And he was ended up being shot in the head by a sniper. It was back behind his ear. I think his left ear uh, came out his mouth. So you can imagine the the damage that was done. So he's going to talk in detail about that. But he's also just accomplished uh, quite a bit since that um, accident. I should say since he was shot by by a terrorist. Uh, he's um, he's he's on the board of directors for the Wounded Warrior Project. Um, Give an Hour and Semper Max. Uh, also, in 2011, he was the Secretary of Defense. The Secretary of Defense appointed him to serve on a four-year congressionally mandated task force for recovering warriors. Uh, man, all kinds of stuff. He has uh, he's been named a champion of change by the White House. Uh, you know, he's been on all the major news outlets multiple times. Uh, written articles for different magazines, including Men's Health. So. Just the list kind of goes on and on, and he's actually he's a coach and a speaker now, and a motivator, inspirational speaker, and uh, he he really has has I think a lot of inspiration to share with us. So I'll uh, bring in Justin now. Justin Constantine, thank you very much for being on the show. It's an honor to have you. Uh, I have to say, a few weeks ago, I got a call from Johnny Yellick, who was actually episode number one of the podcast and he said hey have you have you talked to this guy i said no no so um, i looked you up and watched several videos of you on you know various news outlets and uh, videos on your website and uh i read about your book so there's plenty of info out there about you so uh, welcome thank you justin <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's an honor for me to be here. Uh, I really appreciate you inviting me. And yeah, Johnny, I'm glad to hear Johnny was uh, guest number one. Johnny's a special guy, and we all have lots to learn from him. Yeah, yeah, he's he's very motivating. In fact, a, a friend of ours came up to me at church Sunday, and she had just started listening to the podcast, and she said, uh, "Hey, that Johnny Yellick, I really, really digging him. He's he's very yeah. interesting." So. Um, but I mean, you're you're really along the same lines, and so you've got a really uh, some an incredible trial, or maybe maybe you'd say trials that you've overcome and maybe are still <laughs> yeah. dealing with. And so I'd like to, if you just explain to us, really, like what do you do now for a living? Sure. Uh, although my background is a, as a lawyer, I practiced law for 15 years and on active duty in the Marine Corps, did criminal defense and criminal prosecution. Um, and then a bunch of different things in the reserves. When I deployed, I was in the infantry unit doing civil affairs. I wasn't there as a lawyer. But I, I quit uh, practicing law about three years ago. My last job was as a lawyer with the FBI on a counterterrorism team, uh, which was a great job. But I wanted to be my own boss, and I had a bunch of things I wanted to do. Um, so I changed directions a little bit, and I had already started a business on the side as an inspirational seeker. So that is what... Um, 
I guess if I had one full-time job, that's that's it. That's definitely the focus of my attention. I travel around the country speaking to a bunch of different corporations about leadership and overcoming adversity, the upside of change, um, and, and you know teamwork and other other Marine Corps things that we we cherish in the Marine Corps and other services. Um, I also work uh, with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Hiring Our Heroes program. The team I'm on is focuses on employment for wounded warriors and caregivers. Obviously, that's near and dear to my heart. I also have started working with another uh, a Marine. He was a corporal in the Marine Corps and a post-9-11 vet. And we are providing training to corporations that want to hire veterans but don't really know how to do it. And so... Uh, we are making a lot of videos and providing live training to help those corporations onboard veterans the right way. And I'm also halfway through a seven-month course to learn how to be a coach because I went uh, I've gone through a lot of transition in my life, which I imagine we'll talk about today, and so I want to be a transition coach. And so I've got a number of different avenues I'm pursuing. Um, I know anyone who knows anything about business would say, Justin, you should focus on one and do it a lot better. But um, these are all things I'm interested in, and it's hard to say no to any of them. Well, and when you got a passion about it, I know that makes yeah. it much easier to do, too. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's let's talk about how you got to where you are, and what, you know why you're uh, why you like to coach and to motivate and to to teach you know management leadership. So, tell us about your about how, what happened when you were deployed. Yeah, sure. So I didn't deploy when I was on active duty, and I left active duty in 2004 as a captain, and I joined the reserves in 2005. And the unit I joined was here in D.C., but really it was all lawyers who were teaching the law of war and Geneva Convention and stuff like that to units that were getting ready to deploy. So in 2006, a different unit was looking for Marine officers. Uh, This was the fourth civil affairs group. Uh, and so I, I volunteered to transfer over to that unit to deploy. And so I was, I led a small team and we were attached to a much larger Marine infantry battalion. We were in Al Ambar province where a lot of the Marines were back in 06 and 07, uh, and before that as well. And, uh, so I, I was not there as a lawyer and I felt very fortunate. Uh, in fact, I think it's a highlight of my career to have the opportunity to leave Marines in a combat environment. And so I was surrounded by incredible leaders, starting with Colonel DeGrosse, the battalion commander, who's very well known in the Marine Corps. And I learned a lot from him. And our, our team went out on missions every day. And some of your listeners may remember that 2006 was a very kinetic time for the Marines in, in Iraq. And there were troops in combat every day, a lot of uh, improvised explosive devices, a lot of uh, firefights. I was on a, we were on a combat patrol and I was shot in the head by an enemy sniper. It will be 10 years in, in October. Uh, so I was incredibly fortunate to survive. Um, the bullet hit me behind my left ear and I exploded out of my face. I'm only here because a young Navy corpsman was able to somehow uh, perform rescue breathing on me, even though the bullet went through my mouth and then cut out my throat and performed an emergency tracheotomy so I wouldn't drown my own blood. Uh, George Grant is an incredible, well, he's not a young man anymore, he's 10 years ago. He was only 25 years old at the time. Uh, he had never done this surgery on a human being before, and the sniper was still shooting at the rest of the Marines. So, and he did such a perfect job. My plastic surgeon in the States told me he thought another surgeon had performed it. So he's an example of one of these amazing corpsmen and medics who we hear about or sometimes see in movies. And so obviously he's a, a hero to me and, and will always be my personal hero. So I, I survived that. When he rolled me over, I wasn't breathing. He saved my life. And then I've had so many other people who have helped me along the way. Uh, but I went back to work uh, as a lawyer after I recovered about a year later, eight months later, and stayed in the reserves for, let's see, about uh, six more years. I, I was promoted to lieutenant colonel in 2013. Uh, that same year, I, I retired, medically retired from the Marine Corps and left the FBI to you know, move off in this completely different direction. But I'm now, 
I'm now much more in tune with challenges other people face. I've, I've had a couple dozen reconstructed surgeries. I've, I'm limited in some things I can do. Um, but I feel a lot closer to people who are struggling. And let's face it, virtually all of us are struggling in one way or another at some point. I... I feel a lot more sympathy and empathy for others now than I ever did. I feel like I'm much more involved in helping people. So I feel like it sounds crazy, but having that near-death experience has actually resulted in me being a much better person and and just being able now to provide a service to help other people. As a seeker, a lot of people come up to me and really appreciate what I talk about because I focus on taking care of each other. And, and people out there, a lot of people are struggling who – aren't as fortunate as I've been, Tad, who don't have people uh, they can really rely on. And and so I try to help a little bit with that, at least as a sounding board or providing some guidance based on what I've been through. So so can you – how about setting up the the scene here just before you were shot? Sure. And you know, really what led up to that and what happened and why, why did you get out of the vehicle and, and maybe some of the <laughs> okay. initial diagnosis? Yeah, sure. Um you know, that was our, typically, I should say, okay, as a civil affairs team leader, I was expected to develop contracts with the local Iraqis there to help rebuild the destroyed infrastructure. Uh, where we were, it was very difficult because the insurgency was very powerful. This is right before the, the surge of 2007. The Iraqis, uh, the typical Iraqis were caught between a rock and a hard place, and they would, if they cooperated with us at all, they would be visited at night with very real death threats from those insurgents. So creating meaningful relationships and, and getting contracts was quite difficult. And a lot of what we actually saw was more combat-related. But our battalion commander, Colonel DeGrosse, was uh, very aggressive about being out across the wire, out in enemy territory, checking on his Marines. He had a lot of Marines at different forward operating bases, so he always wanted to have personal contact with him. With them. So October 18 of 2006 was... Not very different from any other day. We made a stop at a police station, had been shot up the night before by the insurgents. So, so Colonel Grosse could meet with the police chief. We stopped by one of our forward operating bases to check on the Marines and make sure they were doing okay. And then we were at uh, a third stop. And one, one thing that was a little bit different, we had a reporter with us. He was there from a North Carolina newspaper. He was doing a story about Colonel Grosse and his Marines. And we, he and I were riding in the same vehicle, and I had noticed earlier he was standing around not moving very much, which is a terrible idea if a sniper may be targeting you. And we knew there was a sniper in the area because he had already killed a few of our Marines uh, in, the, in the preceding two or three weeks. We had a counter-sniper team out looking for him, uh, but it wasn't until later that we actually caught him. Um, and so I, we got out of the vehicle at the third stop, and we were walking away from the Humvee, and I said to Jay, Hey, you need to move quicker here. We don't want something to happen to you. Don't forget about that sniper. And Jay, Jay Price is saying, Jay told me later that as soon as I said that, uh, based on that, he took a big step forward. And then immediately a, um, a brown a bullet came in right where his head had been and hit the wall between us. And before I could react, the next round came in and hit me behind my left ear. And, and that's, you know, when I was, that's how I was shot. Um, the Marines reacted perfectly. They circled the Humvees around me to provide some sort of protection. They were able to get me in the Humvee, which was very difficult considering the sniper was still shooting. Like everyone else, I was wearing 65 pounds of protective armor, uh, so it was, I weighed 200 pounds at the time, so that was a heavy load to get in the vehicle. And then a young corporal who I didn't know very well risked his life and drove us at 70 miles an hour uh, to get me to the aid station so they could stabilize me. And we had a standing order then not to drive faster than 15 miles an hour because uh, if we hit an IED going faster than that, it would cause it to flip over and kill everyone. So he, he risked his life for me just like Coleman George Grant had done. They got me to the golden hour, uh, to the aid station, what they call the golden hour, which is so critical actually from that injury. And then the doctors were able to, to stabilize me. Uh, and get me over to the main um, air base where the, where the big emergency aid station was. So 
that is what led up to being injured. I don't remember. Um, once I was shot, they said I fought back against the corpsman. He said that he, I recognized something happened. I thought he was the enemy. Um, I was aware of what was going on. I just don't remember it. Uh, I, I started getting my memory back about a week or two later uh, after I had been. I was met back to Lanschul, Germany, Lanschul Hospital in Germany. Um, it was there for four days. I remember about 10 seconds of that and then woke up um, in the uh, intensive care unit at Bethesda, in Bethesda, Navy Hospital Bethesda. Wow. So yeah, a lot. <laughs> so at the time, you weren't married. Uh, who, who Were your parents right. notified? Was it your fiancé or your, your girlfriend? Yeah, or, uh, my parents were. I, uh, my girlfriend, when I left for Iraq, my girlfriend left to pursue a PhD at Cambridge University in England. And so we had talked that morning uh, well, over email. And I, as usual, I sent her an email saying we were going out on patrol. And I was let her know when we got back. Uh, we went out on patrol probably four or five times per week. And uh, so... She was expecting another email for me and from me, didn't receive anything, was waiting, waiting, you know, time went on and she was getting really nervous and then she went to dinner, didn't hear anything back, came back, there was still no email, and then the email popped up and she thought it was from me. Um but my mom's name is Judith. So it was from Judith Constantine, very similar to Justin Constantine. Um but it said the subject line said Justin is okay. And basically, they had notified my parents. They didn't have very many details. They just knew I'd been severely wounded, weren't sure of the diagnosis or prognosis at all. Um, and then my my mom forwarded that to my girlfriend, Dahlia. Um, my parents quickly got more information from the unit and from other friends of ours who were over there who, who learned about it because it, it made it made a big splash over there. I was amazed at the time. Um, not many officers of that rank have been injured the same way I was typically as maybe a Lance Corporal or a Corporal. So I, a lot of people had heard about that major who was shot in the head. A lot of people thought I'd been killed. Um, so there were several people talking to my parents. Dahlia, because she was in England, was able to come to Lance School pretty easily. Typically, service members don't get personal visitors there unless um, it's a worst-case scenario. But since she was already in Europe, she got there. She was there for four days, and then they decided to send me on to Bethesda. And at that point, Dahlia decided to um, leave her PhD, even though she was in the very beginning stages, and even though it was a lifelong dream of her to go there, she left it to come be with me in the hospital, even though we weren't married. Um, and having her there with me was the number one factor in me having a, a successful recovery. I can I can say that hands down. Having having someone next to you um, at a time like that who loves you and is just there to take care of you makes all the difference. And and I saw plenty of Marines who didn't have that, and life was life was hard. I mean, hospital is a lonely place, especially at night when all the visitors go away, and it can be tough in there. And so I, I saw a lot of Marines struggling. I helped them as much as I could, but I was in a bad way myself. But having Dahlia there, and then when I went home, uh, I was an outpatient. She she was there every day for me. And then I proposed to her the next year. We got married two years later. But uh, I had said to her, look, we're not married. You don't have to be here for this. You, didn't, you certainly didn't sign up for this. And she said, are you crazy? I, I wouldn't be anywhere else. And that made all the difference. And I'll just say that I have an incredible respect for caregivers and uh, because I've you know, been a very lucky beneficiary of one. But a lot of our... A lot of the American public, I think, isn't aware of how much of their lives the caregivers put on the hold and how much they sacrifice for our, our wounded warriors. And so I, if that's you know, one thing your listeners take away, I hope is that they recognize how important caregivers are. In my case, for a wounded warrior, but really it's for anyone who's suffering a disease or going through a tough time. Yeah, I can I can uh, imagine that most people don't, don't even think about that, of what caregivers go through and... Uh, right. I mean, what was, how did she deal with it? Because I would imagine it wasn't all, I know it wasn't easy for her, even, even emotionally no. and on the relationship. So how did she deal with the, the just the, 
Yeah, it was oh. it was difficult um, because she's from the West Coast. I was from California, so um, she had never heard of Bethesda, Maryland, where the hospital was. Certainly didn't know anyone. I mean, we were fortunate that my family lived nearby. Um, I'm from this area anyway. And uh, my best friend from law school's parents live right down the street from the hospital. So they were gracious enough to let Dahlia live there. Uh, while I was in the hospital, so that made a huge difference too. Back in 2006, things weren't very good at the hospital as far as um, just taking care of the warriors, ha- having dependents there, having a caregiver there, providing for them, making sure they were okay. Things have come a long way, but uh, it was a different time then. And so, you know, I. Once we went home and I was I, I was in the hospital for two months and then they say you can go home and get better probably at home where it's a lot quieter, you can sleep a lot more and all that. And they showed Dolly how to take care of my mouth and, and do everything she needs to do. And, and it was actually a, a very bonding experience for us being together all the, all the time, of course. But I had post-traumatic stress, and it started to come out after a while. And, you know, I was a jerk. And we, when we identified I had post-traumatic stress, and she helped me get care and really encouraged me to get care. Uh, she knew a lot about post-traumatic stress because she's a teacher, and she had studied this in some of her classes. But she didn't, um, I mean, she didn't need to get care herself, although plenty of caregivers do, and unfortunately there are services that provide that. But Dolly has a strong family. She, um, you know, talks to her, her parents every day, and so that was part of it. But she was here alone. Uh, she she really shouldered the burden. She, you know, she's quite close with my mom now, and then uh, my friend's mother, who she lived with, she's quite close with her, too. And so she that, and um, really somehow she was able to put her needs on the back burner and put everything on the back burner for me, which I think um, is harder than actually recovering from the injury. Like, for instance, I was in a coma for over a week. And, of course, I was unaware I was in a coma the whole time. I I wasn't, I didn't know what was going on. But she and my family had to sit there and look at me and, and watch and not know if I would ever talk again or, or what was going on. So I, I think for her and for other caregivers, life is often much more challenging than it is for the wounded warrior, him or herself. Yeah, I mean, she she sounds like a rock star. She's incredible, yeah. So at what point did you realize uh, that you could take the injury and um, inspire others because of that? Or was it before uh, that even? No, no, nothing before that. It wasn't for quite some time. I mean, it was, and it wasn't like as if... Um, I left the hospital after two months, went home, and I was good to go. I, mean, I was I was an outpatient for seven months after that, and I would go to the hospital every couple of weeks for more surgeries. And, and like I said, I have a couple dozen now at this point. So that took quite some time. Um, and I, and I, I can remember having a really rough day. I was in the shower, and I guess I looked down, saw all the scars on my legs where they had taken bones from my legs to use in reconstructing my lower jaw. And, was just having a lot of trouble talking and I, you know, I couldn't really eat normally anymore. I was on a feeding tube for a long time and I just, just kind of broke down and, and had a real rough, rough day. And, um, but then just came to terms with the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm now disabled, but that's okay. Life is going to be a lot different. I'm on a different trajectory now. I didn't know what that was, but I just, kind of came to terms with it and said, you know what, I'm a Marine officer. I have a lot to give still. I have a lot of skills that I have, and, and I want to do well whatever I do. And, you know, that kind of motivated me to get back to work and, and work hard, and, and I did. When I, said, when I went back to work at the Department of Justice, I was working there full-time, drilling in the reserves, I was also going on as a reservist in Marine Corps Command Staff College, and I started a small business. And so I just really threw myself into what I was doing. I told myself, look, life is short. Life could go away in an instant. Do what you want to do. Do things really well, and don't waste any time. And that was kind of my mentality and still is now to this day. Um, the, as, as far as your question about being an inspirational speaker, that didn't occur to me until, geez, maybe 
five years after I was injured. You know, I was asked to speak at a couple Marine Corps birthday balls, uh, and I was honored to do that, and they went very well. And then I was asked to seek some other veterans things. And then a gentleman who I got to know invited me to come to a event up in the Poconos. And they have a group called the Tri-State Troopers, which is made up of state troopers from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. And, every, and there's a lot of military veterans who are state troopers. And every year they have a, an event to honor those who were killed in the line of duty, the fallen troopers. And they raise a lot of money to give to one family from each state who has kids and it goes into a college fund for them. So he asked me to come be a seeker. And I said, of course I'll do that. And he said, what's your seeking fee? I said, well, can you pay for my gas money to drive from Virginia to Pennsylvania? And he said, yeah, we'll, we'll cover your gas and we'll have something for you. So he, I, I showed up and he had an envelope full of cash and, and uh, it was like a thousand dollars. It was very generous to them. I didn't expect anything like that. And obviously they had passed a hat and collected that, and it meant a lot to me. And from there I thought, you know what, I can, maybe I can do this part-time. Maybe I can make a business and it's really therapeutic way for me to talk about um, things I've gone through. I get the benefit of helping other people along the way. And it just started, you know, kind of like your podcast. It started piece by piece, start nowhere, and you grow and grow. And one success begets more success. And to the point where a couple of years later, I, you know, as I said, I left being a lawyer and started doing it full time because I realized I was having a, a, a good enough income to uh, not just to supplement now, but to be my full-time income. So it, it took a couple of years. It wasn't something I ever imagined, but I really, really enjoy it now. And, and uh, I, I really love the opportunity to go and speak around the country. Yeah, it really does serve multiple uh, purposes, man, because you're able to, it's as you said, therapeutic to you. Right. And you're helping others at the same time. So, I mean, I think everybody likes to, to talk and to... To, uh, well, they like to people like to share about their trials and yes. how they overcome. Maybe not everybody, but I think most people, most people do. Um, well, you're right. You're right. When I, I oh, almost always when I go seek an event, large or small, um, of course I'll wait around and talk to whoever wants to talk to me afterwards and take pictures and all that. There's always people who quickly tell me about a challenge that they've gone through, whether it was cancer or loss of a loved one or or just, just their kid going off to college and now they're they're in a different space and they appreciate the message because they what I say helps put their, their problems in perspective and they know that they may have not been they may have not been talking with someone else yet, but now they're gonna start talking to people because they, they can see the benefit. Yeah. So. Well, you mentioned earlier about the upside of change. That was one phrase that um, kind of stuck out to me. And what what yeah. really is the what is the upside to change? Well, you know, I guess as a backdrop, I should say, and, and you know, this is that there, we're surrounded by change all the time. There's always change going on. Uh, it would be impossible to live in a world without change, and so. I know that change can be difficult and challenging for people, uh, especially if it's in the workplace and you have to change the way you do things. But without change, we wouldn't have innovation. We wouldn't have progress. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be moving forward. And so as, as I alluded to earlier, I'm on a whole different path than I was before. And before I was fine. I was a lawyer. I worked for the government on a mission I really appreciated. Life was good, but life is a lot better now, and that's because of the personal side and because of the change I've gone through that got me there. And so one of the chapters in my book and something I talk about a lot is that change is good. And now, I don't mean that every single change you buff up against is awesome. Like, obviously, there's sad, sad things, like getting shot is a sad thing. But then after that, and of course, it's it's, uh, it's smart and okay to grieve and, and think deeply about things and talk and journal and stuff like that and meditate. But we can all learn from whatever trial we've been through. I've learned a lot about myself and about taking care of others and appreciating every day. And so I have a much, um, I don't know, uh, I feel like a, a much more intentional lifestyle now than I did before. And while I, I would never wish to get shot or have an injury like this, 
I'm in a much better place, as odd as it sounds. And so when I talk about change is good, I'm, I'm bringing that from a very personal level. I know there's a lot of other folks out there who talk about it much more professionally and how that means you're making a better business. And I do touch on that when I talk, but really for me, it's just how I believe I've matured as a person and grown as a person because of the change that was thrust upon me. So I'm wondering, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you speak to large and small groups. Yeah, across the across the spectrum. Okay, is there is there a difference that you see uh, in maybe how management, top level, or people who are managers respond to you versus, uh, you know, maybe those not in management positions, how they respond to what you what you're teaching or speaking on? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I typically have close interaction with the senior leaders, whether it's of the whole organization. For instance, when I spoke at Michael's, the, the craft store, their annual leadership conference two years ago, I coordinated closely with the CEO, and we got along great, and we stayed in touch. Um, so whether it's the senior leadership of the whole company or a particular division uh, or whether it's a little bit farther down the chain and it's just the leader of that um small group where I'm seeking. So I, I've connected with all at all levels of leadership. But because I will typically go out to dinner with them or have and or have several phone calls with them, meet with them the day of, they're the ones to introduce me. I have a connection with them and plenty of time for one on one discussions uh leading up to the actual presentation. So they've already and these are decision makers, they already made a a, a choice to hire me and bring me in and and so they they're vested in my success as well. Uh, so that those conversations, those interactions always go well because we've had a chance to get to know each other. Um, the, the other side where it's just a just the folks who are in the audience, whether the leaders or not, I only know if we actually have a chance to, to talk afterwards, but I always uh, will connect with ten or fifteen people at least and and even if it's just walking to the back of the room or having a drink of water afterwards or staying around. And and I talk about what I know about. I don't pretend to know about sales or driving growth or something like that. So I stay in my lane. I talk about my experiences and my thoughts and, and, and how I put it all together. So I'm an authentic seeker because I don't pretend to be something I'm not. Uh, you know, some people don't want to hire me because I – can't talk about certain things, and that's that's exactly right. They shouldn't. So I, I've seen I've seen the connections on a on a mid level manager level all the way to the CEO, and really to get to your question, they're really not that different. Maybe a CEO is looking out for the good of his or her whole company, and a mid level manager is looking out for their team. But they all everyone wants the same thing there at work. They want. They want success of their team, however you define that. They want to be more productive and more efficient. They want people, their employees, to recognize their true potential and their true value. And they want, uh, at the end of the day, they want to provide good service to their customers and be known for being a, a first-class organization. And so that's what I help them with. Okay, very interesting. Uh, random thought, since you meet so many people and work with so many people. Sure. Uh, how do you... Do you remember names well? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty well. I mean, not not perfectly. Some some guys, some men and women can you know snap a finger and know everyone in the room. I'm pretty good at it, and I, I you know, I, I try to follow up with people. If someone gives me a card, I'll connect with them on LinkedIn, or maybe drop my line. At least I I know who they were, and I make notes on my business cards of who this person was. So um, I do a pretty good job, but usually. I, uh, I'm not too scared to say, you know, I, I hate to say this, I don't remember your name. And, and people understand because they know if I'm there talking to two or three or 500 people that I'm going to forget some people's names. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've really been working on that for, for at least 20 years. I mean, it's it, and I haven't – I don't feel <laughs> yeah. like I've improved. I'm aware of it. But, you know, what stinks is I could be talking to someone who I know. I mean, I've dealt with. I know their name. I've dealt with them for a long time. Yeah. All of a sudden – Boom! The name yeah. goes, and I mean, but if it's if it's someone I don't know that well, yeah, I don't have a problem telling them. Hey, yeah. I'm sorry. I know exactly who you are, but I just don't remember your name. Right. <laughs> of well, if you if you read Dale Carnegie's you know 
making friends, influencing people. He says in there, people's favorite word is their name. So you yes. you better you got to work on that. Then. That's exactly right, and, that, and that's <laughs> one of my favorite books too. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book. Uh, and usually, what I'll do when I meet someone, even if they I know they know me, I'll usually say my name again. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt because I don't. I'm not offended if they don't remember my name because I probably don't remember theirs, unfortunately. I, I'm the exact same way. I, I just you and I have been in the same position where people have come up to us and we didn't know their name. So I'm I'm very much aware of that, and I'll just say, hey, I'm Justin. We talked at whatever. Hey, I just want to follow up with you on this and just to get it out there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good thoughts. Yeah. Um. So, how do you? Someone asked me recently to speak at a high school and mm-hmm. uh, for Veterans Day. I don't think I can do it because of my schedule. But I got to thinking. I don't know if I could keep their attention. I mean, how do you, what do you do with, with high schoolers, uh, or is it different at all for you? Uh, it, I haven't spoken to a ton of high schools. I've spoken to some sports teams at high schools uh, and colleges, and so I guess that's a good representation, but I think you have to be able to talk for about, and I, I talk to even um, elementary school kids, and uh, so way, way low uh, grades. But I think if you're talking to a high school group, you should probably cap it at about 20 minutes, maybe a little bit more. But um, I, I just think that you have to, you're right on people's attention span. And frankly, adults, a lot of adults are like this now, too. That attention span just isn't what it used to be. And so I don't think it's something if you're going into a high school, and you want to make an impact. And I used to go to a high school um out here in Virginia once a year, a school that had a lot of students that it was a special school for students who were struggling in one way or another. And I went three or four years in a row. And I I practiced for that just like I would for a corporate event because uh, I didn't want to waste those kids' time. And so I did 20, 25 minutes talking about my background and how I thought – you know my thoughts about their success. I try to make it all about them and what they, how they could benefit from my experience. More about them, less about me, and and that's how I would take it. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage anyone who's going to do one of these events to treat it as something you can just wing or just get there and talk because kids will figure it out in a heartbeat. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you talked about the uh, twenty to twenty-five minutes, and uh, I know you spoke at a TEDx event or a TED event. Right. So. Right. And they they're very specific. It's eighteen minutes. Is that right? Eighteen minutes max. Uh, mine was about twelve minutes. I've done several. I'm getting ready to go do one for Zillow down in Austin uh, next month. But uh, twelve minutes. I done twelve minutes and nine minutes. And they said, actually, guys who were telling me, they said about six or seven minutes is a sweet spot. That's where you really want to be. I don't know how valid that is. I've seen ones that are playing longer. But you're right. You can't go more than 18. And and you have no notes. So uh, really, the shorter you can make it, probably easier on yourself anyway. Well, I actually haven't watched your any of your TED your TED speeches. Uh, but Man. I, I, I don't know why. It's on your email signature. <laughs> so I've watched several other things. But That's I will. Okay. In, fact, in fact, Johnny told me, he's like, did you watch his TED speech? And I said, oh, oh I haven't watched it yet. So. So I definitely well, I, I, I try to make it interesting. I try to make it interesting because I talked about, uh, you know, my story, but I also talked about a friend of mine who is a Vietnam veteran and Congressional Medal of Honor recipient named Colonel Leah Thorsness, who was a prisoner of war in, in Vietnam for six years. And I also talked about a, a woman who is a post or excuse me, a woman who is my realtor in New York, uh, my broker who uh, overcame many, many uh, uh, significant challenges in life and then went on to form a nonprofit to help thousands of people after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. So I wanted to show the audience that, yes, I've been through something tough and come out stronger on the other side, but here's two other folks who I have happened to bump into, and chances are you know someone who's done something like this also, and so we all can we all can do great things in life. Well, not just anyone is invited to speak at those events. So clearly, <laughs> you you've you know you're very effective oh, in what you do. Thank you. Um, what what limitations do you have now? Uh, yeah, I, I guess um, I, I'd love to say, oh, there's nothing I can't do. The sky's the limit. But the the reality is. 
I, uh, physically, um, the doctors took bones out of my legs and were going to suck them up for the lower jaw, so I can't run anymore. Uh, so that's kind of that's a bummer. Uh, but instead, I swim and ride a elliptical machine and maybe do spinning and yoga and stuff like that. So there's always a workaround and uh, lift weights. Um, speaking wise, I, I I have obviously some limitations. I'm sure it's, I'm not seeing perfectly clearly right now. I'm missing most of my expertise. But really, what the biggest thing in, in that regard is that I can't help drooling because I'm missing the end of my tongue and my mouth is, is fantastic a job the doctors did. My mouth, the shape of it just doesn't block all the saliva. So eating is very messy. I have to wear a bib or a big napkin every time I go somewhere. So even though it's been 10 years, it's still really embarrassing and it's, it's just a real pain in the butt. And so I guess... You know, someone could say, yeah, just get over it and deal with it. But it's just, you know, there's some things we can't get past, maybe. And that's my thing is, is the drooling. Because uh, I, I have a lot of nerve damage in my face from from the injury. So I can't tell if there's, like, food on my face or if there's drool on my chin. And so those things are very embarrassing for me. But that's that. But, it's, uh, you know, as far as post-traumatic stress goes i went to counseling for a year and a half i still and that went very well and i still take um and i should say given hour is the organization i went to which provides free mental health care for post 9 11 vets and their families and that was a fantastic service i still i still involved with a few different post-traumatic stress organizations um but work-wise i can do anything i i I might have to look down my notes once in a while when I'm doing a presentation because I do have a slight traumatic brain injury, but no one seems to care about that. Um, I'm running my own business and doing pretty well at it. There's always room to improve, of course. But I, I found that once you identify what your, you know, what your blind spots are, what your weak points are, and just work on those, um, you know, the, the sky is the limit. Of course, I spend a lot of time, um, like every night, I prepare my to-do sheet for the next day, so I don't just spin around being very busy but not very productive. I want to make sure I'm using my time very wisely. I listen to a lot of experts and what they say. My wife helps me a lot, so it's not a one-man show. I'm, I, I, one thing, one of the things I talk about that is it's okay to ask for help and lean on others for support. And I talk a lot about that, and I practice that too. I, I, I ask for help when it's warranted. I think it's okay to do that because I like helping other people, and and I think other people like helping me when I need it too. Yeah, I think people like to be needed or to feel needed. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm happy, like, a, say a veteran contacted me on LinkedIn and said, hey, uh, I'd love to talk to you about transition. I'm in New York City. Uh, you want me for coffee? I would do that in a heartbeat. Of course I would. And so I, I feel like most people probably have that same mentality. Maybe they have to move things around their schedule or, or whatever, but I think most of us want to help each other in some capacity. And so that's why I encourage others to do that. Well, what – what was the hardest part of your recovery, or I mean, was it something different than you've already mentioned? Uh, hmm. Um, I guess, I guess it's really a combination of things I've already mentioned. That probably just adapting, you know, to what they say, your new normal, and just getting used to what life was going to be like. Um, looking different, talking differently, um, having some challenges there. Um, you know, know, knowing that I couldn't come back on a uh, full-time status as a Marine Corps was tough to swallow. I was always, I stayed in the Marines when I was on um, limited duty. And so that was, you know, I can't see out of my left eye. And I can't run. And so I can't do a lot of things that Marines need to be able to do. Uh, so I guess just just getting used to what my new life was going to be like, which isn't really different than someone who, maybe gets divorced or like I said earlier, their kids leave and go to college or, or move away or whatever life, big life change, other people have been in similar ones. And so I remind myself of that, that everyone has overcome challenges. Everyone has fought their share of battles. We're surrounded by such by successful people. So there's no reason I can't do the same thing. Wow. So what would you do? Do you have some strengths now? that you feel like you didn't have before the injury? Well, I, I, 
and I kind of touched on this earlier, but I would say one is that I'm really interested in other people. Um, obviously, I want to help other people. I particularly want to help veterans with uh, employment and with issues they're facing in their personal lives. Uh, but my, my feelings aren't limited to veterans. I really like hearing other people's stories. I feel because I spent so much time thinking and writing about this, I know we can benefit as a society and as a culture from hearing what other people have gone through and how they thrive in the face of adversity. And so I, I like listening to other people. And I'm also, um, like, I live in Manhattan, and, and right up on our street there is a homeless couple, and they're always there, and we, we try to help them however we can. But I enjoy the opportunity to listen to them um, because I learn a little bit from them, but it also makes me aware of challenges, significant challenges that others are facing that, but for the grace of God, I'm not facing. So it's a good reminder to me of, of how lucky I am despite what I've been through. Well, yeah. we don't have a lot of time left. I'd like to, um, I mean, there, there's several other things that, I know that we could have talked about. I know you do you do do a lot of work for veterans, and you mentioned some of that. And um, you've 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 I don't know received many honors and recognitions, <laughs> and you know introduced George W. Bush, and um, right. you've got a book out, um, My Battlefield, Your Office. Do you mind explaining that? And and if you can talk about your your new upcoming book too. Oh, well, yeah, thank you for that. Um, last year, I wrote a, a business leadership book, as you said, My Battlefield, Your Office, and it's available on Amazon or MyBattlefieldYourOffice.com is my page for it. And basically, um, I, I took Marine Corps leadership principles and applied it to the private sector because there are millions of mid-level managers and supervisors who have worked really hard, done a great job, been promoted, but never learned how to lead people along the way. And so that's what the focus of this book is. You know, I, a, lot of, a lot of other military folks uh, talk about, uh, they write books about they're good for executives or C-suite people. That's not my background, so I can't write about that. But I do know mid-level management. And so that was the focus of that book, and it's done quite well, and I've been invited to do book talks around the country as well, which I really enjoyed. Um, in fact, um, I asked President Bush to write an endorsement for the book, and he said he couldn't, he doesn't do this for anybody, but I did have um, someone from his, from the Bush Institute write that, uh, write one, and, and he and I are, we, we see each other at a lot of events, and so he actually, after the book was published, he asked me about it, and that's how it was doing, so I felt pretty good that he even remembered that. Uh, but the second book I'm writing, writing, and Johnny Yellick, who we talked about earlier, is in the book. It's an inspirational book, and I'm profiling 10 warriors who fought and were injured uh, in Vietnam, Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And it's going to be called something along the lines of American Inspiration, 10 Reasons Why You Can Overcome Any University, or something along those lines. And it's, each of those reasons, of course, I'll have a chapter dedicated to one warrior. So it'll be 10 chapters um, about their stories, how they overcame, what happened to them, and what we can all learn from them. And then a couple of chapters uh, of my thoughts about all this and, and some inspiration in there from me as well. So... I'm, I'm working on that now. I've interviewed all the veterans, and now I'm doing the hard part of writing a book. So I'll, I'll publish that next year, uh, which I'm excited about, too, because it's 10 people who are just like Johnny, who have, who have had some horrific things happen to them, but now are helping others and doing incredible things uh, for our country. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, in the show notes, I'll yeah. have a link to your website. and uh, Okay. I'll, I'll do great. both. I'll put your, your My Battlefield, Your Office link as well. And Okay. Um, Anything in closing about about you and 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 how to how to find you also? Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, real quick, as far as finding me, of course, my website's easiest, just justinconstantine.com, um, and, and there's you can learn more about me, and there's ways to contact me there. Um, 
course, my TED Talk is on there and some other videos. But I'm on LinkedIn, so I hope your listeners feel if they want to connect more, we can connect you to LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and building those all the time. But really, what I would one last thing I would like to leave the listeners with is, and this is something I talk about a lot, and this is what the TED Talk really was, which is you're stronger than you think you are. Uh, and, and part two of that would be you can overcome any obstacle uh, that you face in life. And I truly believe that uh, because I've been through it. And we, we, I think we're stronger than we think we are because we, most of us have never really been tested all the way. And when you dig deep, you find resources that you may not have known you had before. You, uh, personal resources, whether it's, whether it's, you know, and I know so many wounded warriors who have been through similar um, recoveries where you just, you know, you fight through it. And like when I started walking again, first I had a, one of those, um, um, it's not, a, can't, it's like a, one of those push things. And so I, um, I would walk to the bathroom in my room and back and then to the door of the room and back and then down the hall and every step, you know, every day a little bit more, a little bit more. So there's those kinds of resources, your own personal fortitude. And then there's the people around you and then there's people who you reach out to out of the blue. But you're, you, everyone's stronger than they think they are. And when you're having a tough day, it's important to remember that and important to remember that, um, if you do buckle down, you're going to overcome whatever that challenge is in front of you. And I'll end this with a joke that um, and this is something my dad said to me when I was very early on when I was injured. I was still hooked up to a lot of machines. And remember, I, I'm a lawyer, but I did not deploy as a lawyer. But my father came in, sat down with a very serious look on his face, and he said, "See, I guess he summarized the universal feelings for all attorneys. And he said, see, Justin, even in Iraq, they know who the lawyers are. And so, <laughs> it's, you know, tough tough love in the Constantine house. But I, I figured that if we could laugh at whatever we were going through, anyone at some point can, can look back and laugh at the trials and tribulations they've had. Uh, and, it, and it is possible to always look on the bright side of things. Great way to end it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay. It's a uh, long way to answer your question, but that, it's an important point. No, that is that's fantastic. Uh I know uh, I know you I think you've got another meeting here in a few minutes, but yeah. uh I would like to just yeah, the listeners please uh please share the podcast and uh, I hope you found even half as much inspiration in this as I have with Justin and please uh, subscribe, like it, share it and um I think it, well obviously anyone could benefit from listening to Justin here. And looking him up online, um, his TED Talk. And I'll, I'll connect with you on LinkedIn, too, if you don't mind, Justin. Sounds and, great, um, of course. And, I, and I'll help you just like I help any of your listeners. If there's anything you think I can help with, please help me know. Thank you very much.